Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Cecil Rhodes is never out of the news at the moment. He was a British businessman, prospector and politician who took up residence in South Africa and was then a keen imperialist pushing the boundaries of British South Africa ever further north, giving his name to what is now Zambia and Zimbabwe, was then northern and southern Rhodesia. His gift of money to Oriel College Oxford, among other places, had become highly controversial, and many people are demanding that his statue is torn down from Oriel as it has been removed elsewhere. Uh, I, I wanted to talk to a biographer of Cecil Rhodes. Duncan Clark's just written a book on his conquest of Zambezia. We had a chance to talk about the man behind the fearsome historical reputation. Um, if you want to watch programmes, as well as listen to all the back episodes of this podcast, you can go to History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. It is a one-stop shop for everyone who loves history. Go and check it out. All you've got to do is use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get one month for free. And then you get one month for just one pound, euro or dollars. Pretty sweet. So please go and check that out. Uh, in the meantime, here's Duncan Clark. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Dan. It's a great pleasure. It couldn't be a better time to be talking about Cecil Rhodes. Have we built this man into mythical proportions? It sounds like this one individual was hugely important in the history of Southern Africa. Well, I believe so. If you look at the true record and uh, the historiography of Rhodes, in particular, in my book, I focus on his last 15 years in the foundation of Rhodesia. That led to a fundamental transition and shift from, if you like, uh, a long-standing millennial feudalism to modernity that took 90 years and continues. He was a man of the late Victorian era. He died in 1902. Um, his foundation of Rhodesia, well, it's actually only Mashonaland at the time, was in 1890 with the Pioneer Column going up. And then Matabeleland through a war that was inspired by the Indebele in 1893 to form Rhodesia subsequently. Right, well, let's start. He was a rural British uh, upbringing, but and he, he, he went to South Africa as a teenager, I think, and got involved in diamonds. Did he rise to the top through his own merits in that tough world of diamond mining? Uh, the reality is that he was um, somewhat sickly. His um, family's medical um, advice or advisors at the time at Bishop Stortford had, um, when he was 16, recommended he goes out to join his brother Herbert in Port Natal, a colony then of the British uh, Empire. And uh, he had his 17th, ber 17th birthday on the boat, uh, a 70-day voyage, and he arrived, no one there to meet him. He was alone. 
He went off to the Umkamas Valley to grow cotton with his brother, who was on and off up and down to the gold fields and the diamond fields looking for opportunities. So Rhodes himself actually managed a, a workforce of Zulus of about 30 at that time, through a year to a year and a half, before he took off on a trek by himself with one person um, coming along as a companion, um, a native assistant, um, through about two to three months to get to Kimberley, where the diamond fields were in, fa in fact found. And there he started off as a, a simple um, digger. He, through the years, um, managed to accumulate claims and amalgamate the holdings of various people. And it's out of that um, time he made his large fortune. A second one came through when the discovery of gold took place in the Bitswaters front. And uh, between those two, um, if you like, polarities was the foundation of his monies. And uh, from there, he basically had done this through a tremendous amount of uh, work. Um, he was no slouch. He put in long hours. He um, dealt with some of the toughest people in the world in Kimberley. And he had a very um, kind of early abrupt introduction to the rural farming world in the Umkamas Valley in Natal, which was an area of um, no distinction of, of any sort for growing cotton or crops. And so, um, you know, as a, as a young man uh, in his early 20s, he, he did succeed. Uh, he made money and very early on he took himself off to Oxford in over a period of about seven years in journeys from, you know, down from the Kimberley um, mines to the Cape and then onwards over um, on a boat to Southampton uh, through about 14 journeys up and down over seven or eight years before he, in effect, got his uh, degree at Oxford. So, you know, he was a, a self-made, uh, effectively. He became a millionaire of the times and, and, and a significant fortune. But his was nowhere near the great fortunes that ultimately, you know, were made by others, such as Barney Bonato, um, Alfred Bight, uh, and others of the same time. And he left uh, a great deal of his money in his last will and testament to, as you know very well, Rhodes Scholars, but also he had invested an enormous amount in the foundation of infrastructure and Rhodesia and the, and the pioneers and settlement. And he had made uh, a lot of um, gifts and uh, bequests uh, to the government of the day, to various ethnicities, to the Indabeli with whom he had the war and uh, with whose Indunas, the chiefs, if you wish, he uh, had negotiated peace with them in 1896 after the rebellion. So, um, you know, he, he, he put a lot of, on the table. Um, he um, did not live in the style to which he could have been accustomed. Uh, he, he led a rather simplistic life. He was often on horseback, on trek, uh, in small boats, in carts and wagons. Um, he came into the country uh, first time in Mashonaland to try to get there through uh, the west, southwest, um, basically through Maklutsi, and it was swamped out and ter torrential rains had blocked his entry. He couldn't go there in 1890, so his next occasion was the year following. Um, through Baira, then a Portuguese holding on Portuguese East Africa, uh, up the Pungui River and over the flatlands and the Lowfelt and the Tsetse Fly and fever-infested areas into what was then the, the very small village of Amtali, now known as Mutari. So, you know, he did a number of seven other visits um, during that time, and he toured through the country. He had uh, a lot to do there, and at the same time, you know, there was the ill-fated Jameson raid in um, 1895 that led to his downfall as the Cape Premier. And so basically from that time, he devoted his entire commitment to Rhodesia uh, from 1896 to 1902 when he died.
Yeah, so I'm but this one was so you, you go for he goes from being a self-made man in the diamond mines, he consolidates the other mines, does empire building there. But when does he go how how and why does he become a an actual empire builder, a, a an imperialist expre, expre, expanding uh the, the the formal British empire in Southern Africa? Well, I think you could see that in terms of the um he had this dream of Cape Tokari for the railway. It was not one that was um, accomplished. Uh, he funded the railways up from um, Kimberley through to Mafeking, on, up into Bechwanderland and onto Bulawayo, and subsequently um, various routes coming in from the east, from Baira through to Matari. And later, after his death, his foundations and trusts uh, committed with other colleagues like Alfred Bight and George Pauling um, established the railway network in the country. But his um, impression of, of the time, I think, was that he believed in the empire. Um, he wanted to establish uh, Rhodesia as a self-governing colony, which it became in 1923, after the company state, the British South Africa Company, of which he had founded with many, many others. Um, its term had expired under royal charter at that time. And uh, he was a, a man of, um, you know, uh, many sides. Uh, he was... Um, no intellectual, as the critics would say, but he had, he had a library in, in, in his house, Grutuskul, uh, in Cape Town, that was probably the best uh, of any in Africa and probably one of the greatest ones in the world regarding Africana and literature of the day. Uh, it had two and a half thousand books in it, and I've been through that, among other things, and, and seen it very carefully um, as a, uh, a sort of in, a form of um, inspiration to him. Uh, uh, he had uh, read a lot. Uh, he took books on his travels. He had agents scour Europe and in, in, in Britain at the time for, for literature on Africa. Uh, he had one of the greatest collections of Africana of the day by any means. So his imperialist interests were, in a sense, tied up with a wider British empire and colonial project. Uh, during those days, uh, of course, you would know that um, the British established many colonies in many other parts of Africa and elsewhere in the East, and uh, Rhodesia was um, not the same because it was um, a company charter estate and uh, subsequently not managed out of London. It was always locally driven and uh, with its own residents coming out of the company on the one hand, the settlers on the other, and subsequently, as time went by, uh, changes in constitutional government, etc. Right. Well, that's why I just want to drill down on that a little bit more. So should we? do we need to think about Rhodes and the establishment of Rhodesia to the north of Britain's colonial colonies in South Africa uh, as almost like the East India Company setting up in Bengal 150 years earlier. Is, is this a, a kind of private enterprise empire? Not, not strictly. Uh, it was under royal charter, as you correctly note. Um, it was a charter given by Queen Victoria in the day. Um, it had a 25-year tenure. Um, it um, basically required roads to establish um, civil government. Um, of course, the natural institutions that were founded um, were completely different to anything there before in the terrain was then called Zambesia, um, which was really a set of Indebelli dynasties and a whole number of smaller Shona patriarchies of um, limited scale and, and significance who had been predated upon by the Indebelli, who had slaved them for 53 years, um, as well as slavery in the East um, coming out of the old Portuguese Praza systems that had penetrated into Manica land, into Mashona land, etc. So I think we've got a very different model in, in, in this particular instance compared, say, to the classical British colonial model elsewhere. 
So Rhodes was going in, getting mineral concessions from African in, indigenous ruling elites. But was he explicitly? Did he want to eventually supplant them and, and rule directly, or, or and and then and also flood settlers into the area and create facts on the ground? Or how did he think his relationship with these Shona, these other groups, would progress? Well, the initial um, concession called the Red Concession, negotiated in eighteen. Uh, 88-9 um, that uh, was signed by the Indibeli king of the day, Lomagula, who succeeded his his father, Mzilikazi, um, was a concession for the pioneers to enter as a column into Mashonaland, which was a sort of um, fiefdom in a sense, partially, not entirely, of the Indibeli, but the Indibeli in a sense wasn't a Westphalian state. He didn't have... Um, uh, clear boundaries, etc., and the concession was to, of course, um, to both uh, exploit or to rather prospect for minerals, and to establish um, a settlement, etc. So the, the the effect of that was that that's where the concentration of the interest of Rhodes at the time was, and it was like that and and trembled for three years until a conflict was materialised between the settlers in Mashonaland and the Indibeli king and his impis or his uh, warriors of about 20,000 on the western side of what is now Zimbabwe. Um, so the minerals, um, the El Dorado, the, the myth of, of fear, these were sort of well thought and um, widely presented concepts in the sort of um, romantic literature of the times. But it didn't prove to be a second rand, uh, a la the Witzbortus Rond in South Africa, with the kind of gold nuggets falling from the trees as if gooseberries, as it were. And um, this uh, meant that, you know, the initial expectations and hopes were dashed and the country had to survive. It hadn't been cut off at the time of the initial establishment in September 1890 uh, for three or four months by an absolutely torrential set of downpours that cut the wagon trails and people were succumbing to black fever and malaria and a number of other maladies. The settlers and the turning towards agriculture and land uh, as an agrarian economy was built up initially and subsequently investment came in for mining. But it was not the old style mining of the ancients that had been there sort of 1500 years before that were rather shallow mines and, and, and surface and alluvial um, mining. But it was a full-on um, mining enterprise. It wasn't restricted to gold. It went into a range of minerals, chrome and other ultimately. What did Rhodes think of these African societies that he was encountering? Uh, initially, um, I would have thought he, in my mind, and from what I read in all his speeches and the literature, um, he was um, clear that, for his point of view, the British were the were the best uh, medicine, if you like, for for Africa's feudalism, recidivism, and uh, he was definitely opposed to the. Um, behavioural characteristics and uh, predation of the Indibeli that would slave Shona and Lewanika across the river in, in, in what uh, other Zambezi. Um, but um, you know, his, his intention was to have um, uh, one type of uh, society with a basically meritocratic system. Uh, there were ideas for qualifications to vote, and they were clearly not uh, in the uh, likelihood to be met by very many of the elements in the native societies that were around at the time. 
but they did uh, uh, keep that for quite some years. Um, and that became a point of contention in the late 60s, ultimately, uh, when there were matters arising about federation and independence for Rhodesia or not between London and Salisbury. Um, but his, his mind was that, um, you know, basically uh, the local or top-down societies would have to be brought on um, progressively over time. And this is, in effect, on the economics of it is what happened. Precipitating the Boer War, is, is, that his, is that his fault? And was that a disaster that also sort of tarnishes his legacy? Uh, the simple answer is no. Um, th that is a claim made in several biographies. Um, don't forget that he had to resign as Premier of the Cape Colony in 1896, immediately in the beginning of 1896, after the failure of the Jameson Raid. Uh, the Boer War, I think, if you look at it, um, in, in all the stuff I've read and um, everything clear to me, is it was a confrontation between, effectively, London and Pretoria, uh, and between the Afrikaners, the Boer, as they were called and known, and Kruger on the one hand, and Milner in the south, um, as Premier of the Cape and others in that domain. So to, to many today on the streets with Rhodes Must Fall, and Rhodes represents uh, imperialism, racism, exclusion of native peoples from, from uh, their own sovereignty, you know, they're running themselves, uh, some sovereignty in, in the parts of Africa in which he operated. What should, do you think, his, how should we remember him? What should his legacy be today? I do address that in the book. I, I deal a lot, a lot with a lot of the, the comments and critics made, um, both the old historical ones and biographies going back even before his um, time uh, ended and uh, subsequently to now in the modern era. And um, his intention was to have um, basically a self-governing colony or country. As it turned out, um, there were provisions made under, for the, under the arrangements for the protection of native interests for um, the, the continuity of customary law in certain domains and not in others, obviously. Those would fall under the juridical realities of the central state that was set up. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, your, the book is called? It's called Rhodes' Ghost, The Conquest of Zambezia. And I put that subtitle in, Dan, because um, the book is about all the different um, forces that came into play from the origin of the the San, the Khoi and the sand people of the very tens of thousands of years ago, who were pushed out of the Highfelt and the Zambezi area by incomers from the north. And ultimately, there were several of these lords of the savannah um, that came and went in different kind of mini empires over time. And if you look at the long arc of history, my point is that the Rhodes and Rhodesian era was another one. But it, uh, it, it, it fell as well. It, it went to its demise and it was, in effect, um, brought to an end by civil war, uh, ended in 1980, and now a new regime has taken over, or did take over then, and you have a second republic in, in place today. So it looks at a long span of history and uh, tries to situate it in that context as well. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.